Welcome everyone to the Seed Camp Podcast. We have back our favorite beatboxer, Scott Sage, EIR at Seed Camp, a distinguished VC and great guy all around, good friend. So Scott, we're gonna do a little jam session this morning or, or are we too tired? I think it might wake us both up. Might wake us both up? All right, you drop Eight it. Eight seconds. Drop Should it. Should do it. There you go. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> on a brisk London morning, we're going to be talking about sales today, uh, following up on where we left off with Scott last time. Um, sales execution, when you start thinking about sales and how to scale the sales uh, process within a company. Scott, maybe you can start us from, from the very beginning of, of an organization, the, the point where a discrete sales organization starts developing outside of the, the original founders. So I think first, you've, you've, you've built a beta product, you and your co-founder, you uh, have a couple of people testing it. At a certain stage, someone saying, look, if you had these features, we'd be happy to pay you for it. And Step by step, you're slowly building your, your first product organization. Um, and what I guess we typically call the search phase is when you're looking for or accidentally stumbling across your first 10 customers. So you've built a product, uh, you have a small team, you, you probably don't have anyone focusing on sales. You as a co-founder, you and your co-founder are the sales team. Uh, so your first 10 customers, you really have no idea what you're doing. There's no process. Uh, it, it's, it's completely random. And I think when, and again, depending on the size of the contract that you're selling or depending on the product that you're selling, there are many different things that you should be doing to test uh, the kind of sales organization that you should then be creating once you get to a phase where you feel as though, A, we've definitely hit product market fit, and B, the company can sustain the costs of bringing in your first salespeople. And I think what, you, you've probably seen this as well, here in Europe, we typically go from product market fit founder-led sales to, okay, let's hire a salesperson, and that's a VP sales. And sadly, I think that's probably the one position that I've seen get let go the most at, at a young startup. And it's typically because those, those, those characteristics that someone would bring in are, are wrong. And it's, you know, hey, hey, Carlos, uh, love your product. I'd love to come and be your first sales guy. I'm 40, I've been working at this mid-market company. I have a ton of contacts that are relevant for your space. I've managed 10 people in my previous job, and oh hey, I'm not that expensive, just give me you know, five points of equity. And what invariably happens is the person comes in and they want a PA, they want someone to generate leads for them, they don't realize that there aren't any prospects for them to even go and speak with. And the whole thing starts to crumble and six months later that first VP of sales gets, gets fired. And I think what we would coach founders to do is take a step back once you've hit your first, and again, depending on the size of the product that you're selling, what kind of product, uh, maybe it's your first 10 customers. Uh, if you're a security company, maybe it's your first three customers because you're selling 100K a year uh, product. If you're a small SMB product, may maybe it's your first 500 customers. Look back over time and, and look at what do they have in common? You know, Where are they located? Uh, what, what problem did they have? Uh, what was the process? Did I speak with the CEO? Was it the head of IT? Was it the head of security? Uh, how did I get to that person? Did they find me? Did I find them? Was it a warm intro? Was it a cold call? Uh, was it a, a channel supplier, etc.? 
And when you, when you can look through and find those commonalities, you should then try and focus on your next 10 or 20 or 500 customers looking relatively similar to your first 10. And, uh, and I think that's where most of us and, and most companies have failed today. So I think as a, as a phone. Yeah, but how, how do you get, so you, you, you clearly sort of set the groundwork for a potential person coming in to effectively replace the founder time. Mm -hmm. But how do you make that transition? Because if in, in, in full agreement, if, if a corporate salesman brought in too early as a VP of sales, is like the worst thing you can do. How do you then actually take all this customer development know-how and understanding of how conversions were made to and pass it on to somebody else? And is that a junior person that you hire and then you train up? Is that somebody from a different part of the organization that stops doing what they're doing? What, what is a typical thing that you've seen as a, sort of the first so, dedicated step? So that is, that is the million dollar question. What, what I, I guess I've seen work the best most frequently is bringing in a, a mid-level salesperson. So they're not a 24, 25-year-old first sales job. This is someone who has probably been through some kind of rigorous sales training before, but someone who's equally very hungry and has some of the skill sets that a founder would have. So they're, they, they will sit down with you as the founder, look at the first 20 customers you've closed, again, analyze them, and figure out how to build some kind of a sales process from there. And that first person needs to be pretty versatile because they're not just picking up inbound leads and calling them and closing them. They're probably going to be doing a bit of everything, generating leads, qualifying opportunities, closing them, and then documenting everything so that the next salesperson that comes in, and you're now effectively growing the sales team by 100%, can replicate what they're doing and build that out. So I don't think, I think really until you get to maybe four salespeople, it's hard to build uh, the right sales execution because everybody will be doing a bit of everything. And maybe at that stage, four or five salespeople, you can, you can modularize it, if you will, and have one person focusing on, okay, I'm, I'm responsible for responding to inbound leads and uh, handling any customer queries. The second person might be just qualifying opportunities so that our third and fourth salespeople are, who are genuine salespeople are just good at taking over those leads and then closing them and doing it in a matter that uh, from you know month one when they join to six months later, they've actually had a plan to figure out how to shorten that sales cycle from the point of them taking over from say uh, three months down to 25 days. And so it's always knowing, I think, as a founder, at which stage the company is sustainable to bring on sales and how to allow them to then propel the company to the next stage. And, and I would say, again, I think, you know, making that transition which you've asked about, I don't think the right time to bring a VP sales on is really until, for a SaaS business, let's just say somewhere around a million dollars recurring annually or at least getting close to that rate, you know, growing 20% a month. Again, a lot of stuff is still going to be very random. You may not have the most slick, efficient process, but at least at that stage, because these people are expensive, both with, um, with, with salary and equity, it's an expensive and very uh, unforgiving position to have to let go if, if that person doesn't work out. Mm. Um, one, maybe one of the other things, I think, just going back to common founder problems, um, I think very early on, one of the best things they could do, I've written a blog post about this, is, is uh, building the win-loss habit. So it's a win-loss review is when uh, you've looked at the first 10 customers 
and you've not only segmented, you know, they're all based on this geo and have this problem and we bought from this person, but it's uh, the process you go through to actually execute and win the deal. And I think it's important to, if you win a deal, look at how you want it, but equally as important when you lose a deal to go back and figure out where did we go wrong, you know? Uh, did we commit too much time to that, even though we knew pretty early on that they said IT has a freeze on any new implementations for nine months? I think a really experienced salesperson would say, great, I will come back to you with an email in eight months mm -hmm. to, re to restart the dialogue. I think the worst thing for a salesperson to do is come second place because the only thing that they have is time. And so if they're wasting time on something that's not going to convert into a sale, that's, that's painful for the organization. One of the things that I um, remember hearing way back when, when I was at a, a talk, um, was the kinds of deals that, as you're evaluating sales uh, leads, that you should try to steer clear from. And we're, uh, we, we can cover a lot of different components of the sales process, like pricing and all these other things. But I just want to sort of maybe touch upon something that you might have heard or in your experience, things that are toxic um, sales uh, deals. For example, one of the ones that I do remember was a, a deal that is conditional deal for investment. So this is a sales yeah. process. Um, yeah. And yes, upon this close, there, there will actually be yeah. a, a potential investment. Or another one that I remember um, is a vanity deal. Uh, vanity yes. deal being like, okay, I really need to have like fill in the gap big brand yes. as a customer, but I'm going to bend over backwards to the point where I broke my organization. Yes. Um, and, and, and almost invariably, uh, I have a lot of discussions with VP of sales and they, you know, they'll kind of take you aside and say, you know, here's, here's how we're looking for the quarter. Uh, here's what our sales team is going to execute on. Oh, and by the way, don't tell anyone, but I've been working on this deal. Uh, and if we bring this in, this is going to cover the next two quarters of our of our bookings. And it's kind of like, who, who is it? Oh, it's you know, big company X. Oh, have they? You know, where are you in the process? Well, I've qualified them, but I'm, I haven't quite spoken to the decision maker yet. But and uh, so I think the I think the biggest vanity kind of uh, <laughs> I like that term. The, the biggest vanity lead to deal with problem wise. Uh, for, for companies, that, again, at this stage that are making that transition from founder at sales to building a sales team, uh, is the kind of, I get, we call it bluebirds. So the the big, you know, if, if, you're, if you've been selling licenses for um, 12K ACV, and all of a sudden you have one your first one that's come in and it's looking at 200K, I think committing too much time to that kind of a customer, especially when you have to go and visit them. So say you're, you're headquartered in London, but this, this, this team is in Boston. And so you're flying back and forth for three trips. For anything you do, you have to qualify where they are in the buying process. You know, who, who's the ultimate decision maker? And almost more, I'd say it's probably the number one vanity lead is, is as you would describe it, the big, the big customer that's never going to convert. So as nice as it would be to be able to go, you know, especially if you're raising around or trying to hire your VP sales and say, look, we've closed our first six figure deal. Uh, I think those are a huge waste of time. And I think early on, if you have already maybe four or five salespeople working for you, I think it's really important to set minimum pricing at a pretty early stage because it focuses the sales team. So there's a seed camp company that's selling its software on average for 
I think a license is, is on average about 30K a year. And they will talk to customers that could come in at around 20, if and only if it could get up to 30 or 40 in the next 12 months. What they won't do is talk to anyone that's below 20 because they found that actually it's a longer sales cycle for some reason. And also over time, those guys don't tend to grow and become a 40K account. The other thing is uh, the CEO will maybe allow them, again, referring to the Bluebird, they might allow them one Bluebird customer per quarter, but they have to talk to either the CEO about getting allocating time to that. And if at a certain stage, and again, an experienced salesperson should be talking to the sales team on a daily or minimum weekly basis about every single account that they're working. If they get the sense that the Bluebird, you know, large potential customer is not going to convert, they'll take them off of it immediately. Um, so I think putting that kind of, um, putting those values into your sales team early on will, will really help drive uh, uh, focus. Mm. By the way, I was just looking at my notes of when I went to this talk where the guy talked about and mentioned the vanity deal. And there was another deal that he, and I wish I could remember exactly the details of it, but it was called the Barney deal, like the, the purple Barney dinosaur. Deal. And I think if I remember correctly, what he meant by that was staying away from deals where there's lots of like hand waving and lots of happiness, but not very concrete deal terms, which then you find yourselves having to deliver on later. <laughs> yeah. If I remember correctly, I think that's what it was. But. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of guilty of one of those. There was a company I was working with a few years ago and uh, a guy I knew had just moved over to Burberry. Uh, I probably shouldn't mention it was Burberry, but anyway, it was Burberry. <laughs> and uh, we then got in front of pretty, you know, three pretty senior folks over at Burberry about selling them a license. We knew who they were using. Uh, we knew that it was our, this product was a great replacement for them. And after the very first meeting, the sales team was like, we're going to drop it. And I, almost, I, I was probably a little too pushy in saying, this is a great deal for us. This could be one of our biggest deals of, of this year. It's a great customer for us to then move into the fashion vertical. And they're like, Scott, you know, uh, we've had zero traction in fashion to date. Uh, it's not a focus for us going forward. The sales cycle is too long. They are actually... Uh, running their companies on razor thin margins so they really aren't investing into software for the future and so even I think founders need to be weary sometimes of their investors trying to push the wrong deals into them that could be these big uh, mm. the party deals I like that mm. but um, cool so if we go back to kind of where we left off in terms of transitioning away your founder led sales process to your first hire you you kind of talked a little bit about um, transference of knowledge on uh, what the buyer what the buyer wants and needs. We talked about um, how you've quantified the way that you've generated leads. Now, if we move into the other components of that, and one of them, which has been always a, a pain for everyone, is thinking about pricing. Mm -hmm. And how do you start experimenting with pricing? For, especially for products that are sold in a direct sales process rather than sort of like the web where you can yeah. move numbers up and down really easily on e-commerce. What, what, what's your sort of thoughts on that? I think it's, it's one large A-B test. I think you take what you can get in the early days. And I'm obviously a fan of always charging upfront for something that you're, you're delivering for them. I don't think any product should be sold for free unless, uh, unless that, that strategy makes sense for you. But, um, as every founder knows, in the first three to ten sales that they make, they're they're basically giving the product away. Uh, they're doing it to get reference customers. They're doing it to to further validate the product. They're doing it to kind of understand the framework 
of building a sales model and how to, you know, every touch point that you go through to align your selling cycle as a company to the buyer's cycle. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's obviously important that and that's fine. Um, and I think you know finding price elasticity is there. I guess there there are numerous hacks. You know, one is by just having testing various uh, um, uh, pricing amounts on the website, and seeing what people are clicking through, and and looking at uh, feature comparisons. Um, I think probably one of the best ways early on to test pricing is through your sales team, and typically through a more experienced salesperson who will start off very high and see you know visibly what the response is face to face when they kind of throw out a number and i think over time with your first let's let's say you're selling software for 30k a year again like like one of the seacamp companies um, they've i think they've been actively trying to increase their pricing probably every 6 months and so far they've 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 realized that they haven't reached price elasticity yet and it's kind of interesting cuz a lot of it's psychological in terms of your own confidence and belief in yourself. And early on, it's just, please God, buy our product, buy it for anything. And then from customers 20 to 30, it's, okay, we're pretty confident that we have something that people will pay us good money for and you increase the pricing by 45%. And no one really bats an eyelash at what you're charging them. And so over time, uh, I, I guess the most successful software companies I've seen are pretty aggressive about increasing their pricing fairly frequently. And I think you have to be very transparent about when you do it um, and be very open with existing customers saying, look, and I, I, my belief is you should grandfather them in with their, their old pricing. Uh, but if they want some of the new features you're about to release, then obviously they have to pay for those. Um, so I think it, it's, a, it's a slow, gradual process. I don't think people launch and, and know the pricing automatically. Yeah, no, there's a there's a book, um, geez, I need to remember what it is, but it's, um, maybe if I can find I've it, I can share it. I've never read a good book on, on pricing. pricing. No, I think what, what the book does a really good job of is talking through, um, and, and maybe, you know, if, I, if it'll come to mind, I'll mention it, but the what it does a really good job of is talking about not just these experiments of, of A-B testing price and then seeing what the, the ceiling is for a customer, but also thinking laterally and thinking about a bundling and thinking about sometimes um, the the price point for the actual product might actually hit a ceiling, but there is room to expand services that you bring into the equation as part of the sales process. Maybe it's the integration that they really need, and then that allows you to add other other services into it. So is it, is it Michael Deering from Harrison Metal? Could be. What's in, in Palo Alto. He's uh, he was a VP at eBay for a really long time. He wrote a very extensive blog post, maybe twelve or eighteen months ago, on on pricing. It's it's almost like the Bible. It's the only. It's it's probably the best thing I've read on pricing, but introduces a lot of psychological um, components on you know anchoring pricing and. Uh, and you know various aspects that you, you know, something might be thinking hasn't slipped, but yeah, no, I actually, think it's, I think it's the, Michael Deering. Well, for for those of you guys that are looking to find some resources on pricing, Michael Deering is one of them. I found it. It's called uh, the one that I was referring to is called The Art of Pricing by Rafi Muhammad. The Art of Pricing by Rafi Muhammad, and it's just if you if that's something that you're kind of stuck on. Um, check out maybe those two resources, and then it'll help you at least start thinking about both how to extend your current pricing, but also perhaps thinking laterally into how you, other services might add value too. So wh- where did we leave off, Scott? Um, I, I guess 
Last thing we, we should talk about on, on sales success and, and execution is maybe the phase of um, this, again, the search phase, which is you, you have a team of maybe four or five salespeople. Uh, you, you've learned a lot about how to navigate the sales process. You're, you're probably at a stage where maybe you're able to forecast the next quarter, but at least you're growing month over month and uh, you're... you're in a, in a maybe minor way, closing the length of the sales cycle. Uh, then you move into what's called, you know, the, the focus stage, and this is when you need to to really become best in class. And this is, you know, post hiring a, a VP sales. Um, and again, sorry, sorry, marketing people that we've left you out. You're obviously a, a very critical component in any sales process. I think in SaaS companies in Europe, they probably build. They focus on building the sales team first and getting, you know, in many cases I've seen sales teams get to 10 people before they've hired a, any marketing person. And maybe one of the founders is in charge of, you know, writing blog posts or content marketing, marketing, etc. I think early on, as soon as you're ready to hire your first salesperson, you should probably hire a junior marketing hack, someone who can do a bit of everything, your CRM, email marketing, uh, maybe if it makes sense, your, your, your AdWord campaigns. Uh, but really it's someone who can own uh, the top of the marketing funnel and I think you you, you put them on a very uh, very strict um, you set very strict goals for them monthly and quarterly on the number of leads that they should be generating so that's that's kind of your only goal um, I think once you, so once you're, you're migrating from search which is a handful of salespeople with a sales process to figuring out what what is best in class for us that's a stage where I think um, London or Berlin, Paris, etc. There's a wealth of, of talent of people who can come in and be sales ops. Uh, your kind of technical person who's building all the CRM and managing leads from marketing over to sales, customer success. I think there's some amazing customer success groups here in, in Europe, and uh, and then the the field sales. And that's always a big question: of, Do we introduce any kind of field sales if if our pricing can allow that? If if we can, you know, if you're selling anything over under 100k a year, I'd say, at per, per, per license, probably not sustainable for a field sales, small field sales team or an inter enterprise team, but anything over one or 200k a year, probably. Um, I think at this stage, you should really understand uh, the sales success criteria. So as a product, you're kind of well-known in the market. Uh, your category is pretty well-defined, and hopefully you're a market leader and, and uh, describing how you talk about that, I see you smiling. Uh, and then, um, so at that stage, at least your sales team won't have issues getting in front of customers. Mm -hmm. But then there's the sales execution criteria, and that's when uh, you want to align yourself to yeah. your buyer's process. And at that stage, pretty more often than not, your customers know that they probably need you. And so figuring out how to align your sales process with their buying process is Kind of more of an art than, than science. Yeah, and that's 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 when you've hit nirvana, right? Yeah, that's, that's just the mind meld. Yeah, exactly. Um, cool. Well, I I, um, I know that we had left off on sales. Maybe we can um, move to some of the challenges that that plague um, most startups uh, when they're looking for maybe that young person, that that mid-career salesperson is the talent gap. It's the the challenge of not just knowing where you need to go, but finding the right people to get you there. Yeah. 
Scott. Maybe you can comment a little bit about sort of what you've seen in, in that in both the US and Europe. So Europe, you know, when you and I, and you've actually been at this a lot longer than I have. Call me um, old, dude. No, but old. you're more experienced. <laughs> you're very sagacious as well. We were talking about that meeting earlier. Uh, I think, you know, Europe is still early in the building of yeah. the startup ecosystem. Obviously, CCAMP has been a huge part of that mm -hmm. uh, in taking building ecosystems locally. Um, I would argue there's not really a gap in financing anymore. I would say there's definitely on the demand side not a shortage of brilliant ideas and founders to to execute on them. I think the only kind of persisting gap in Europe is, I guess I don't know what you would call it, maybe the middle middle management talent gap, or but it's it's not quite your um, it's not your SVP of marketing or sales or a, a COO. It's it's kind of just the level below that of sales managers, marketing managers. Uh, Product managers, product is probably one of the biggest weakness, and, and marketing as well for, for certain categories. I think that's the one area where um, it probably causes some, I don't know, degree, I don't know how you would run this in a multiple regression, but some degree of slower growth mm. in, in European startups on average uh, is the lack of a thick, experienced talent pool that has you know, joined a startup at person 50 and seen it grow and been instrumental in that growth to uh, not, not only really 500, but kind of 5,000. And if you take a step back, I guess it's because there are so few companies here that have gone from you know, 50 to 5,000, I guess. You know, Klarna is, is a big company in Stockholm, same with Spotify, uh, Adyen in the Netherlands, Mimecast here in London, and you know, several others around the continent. Uh, so I think the only variable is just time compared to, again, looking at a at a San Francisco or even a Boston or New York, and you have people who've been through kind of multiple startup cycles. Yeah. Uh, and I would say the, the real kind of tech startup ecosystem didn't really start going in its you know early genesis until what maybe the mid '90s, and mm. you could argue that that was maybe even too early. Maybe it was early 2000s, but maybe mm. mid '90s is right. So. Um, I don't think there's really anything we can do. I think startups are... It's a decade then. It, it's a decade. We're doing a great job of uh, attracting talent from places like the US. I mean, London and Berlin especially, there are a lot of uh, senior people who've come over from, who are you know, early at eBay or Amazon who want to change a lifestyle and you know enjoy life a little bit more. So they've come to Europe to work in a startup. Um, obviously, the, the new tech visa, the, highly, the used to be the highly skilled migrant person's visa is great. I think they're allowing like 250 or 500 people over here. It's not yeah. enough, but it's it's a start. So uh, I think that's really the only major challenge a lot of companies that are in full-on scale mode mm. will have now. And that could cause companies to potentially go to the U.S. faster or, or have multiple satellite offices mm. to attract the relevant kind of talent that they need for their company. And to talk about satellites and, and talent, do you see that the role of um, the European startup is going to become one where it is a series of satellite offices with HQs in major cities, as opposed to, let's say, if a company's born in the Valley, I mean, they're generally Valley-based for a long time before then they, they need to start sort of going abroad. But yeah. is, is the nature, is the evolution of the European company one where a dev team is in Portugal or Estonia? Um, I think we're, I think that's a 
the most awesome question because no one knows yet. And and we do know that in the US, uh, let's just take cloud companies that have gone public. We know that on average, sometime between year three and four, and roughly after you know, 30, 40 million of funding, they open up their first office. And it's almost always in London. Sometimes, historically, it's been in the Netherlands or in, uh, in no, I guess it's always Netherlands or, or London, really, for, for those companies, at least. There are about 60 companies who've done that. And here in Europe, I mean, to answer the question, I think, um, let's look at Conversocial, which was a company I was on the board of. They went to New York probably in year three. And now New York is, I would imagine, this year will eclipse um, employee-wise and revenue-wise will eclipse Europe, and it, it's certainly growing a lot faster um, just because of the, the size of the market. Mm. And Portugal's an interesting one, you know, amazing engineering talent. Uh, um, Codacy, one of the Seacamp companies, great engineering team, uh, starting to close some big deals on the West Coast. What's the, what's the right thing for them? You know, do they have a sales organization in London and in San Francisco right now, both trying to figure out what their sales execution is for two different geos. I don't know. And in Israel, the process is it's tried and tested, and it's keep engineering in Tel Aviv, for example. And day one, you're trying to get to product market fit as a CEO, and you probably your head of product is with you, and, and the poor CTO is or chief architect, whatever, is going back and forth, you know, every two weeks. Uh, is trying to get to product market fit in the U.S. and then they build the commercial organization there. Um, and I think in Europe we don't really have a, a model that works yet. Take uh, TransferWise, they've been able to build a very big, fast-growing company um, here in London. Uh, look at look at Spotify, it was many years until they put any kind of commercial guys on the ground in the U.S. Same with SoundCloud. Uh, I think they had you know, David running around in, in the U.S. probably starting in like year four. Mm. So I don't know, and I don't know the ramifications of splitting teams up. Um, I, there was a large, fast-growing company I was involved with recently who has outgrown their their building here in London, and even for them, thinking about splitting a couple of their teams up in two locations, even on the same square here in London, was uh, causing everyone panic because it would kind of kill the culture. So. I don't, I don't think we know yet, and I don't think there are enough really good case studies, and it takes it obviously takes a very strong leader to make that work, um, and someone who's unable to sleep very often because they're always on an easy jet or VA flight between yeah. here and Sevilla to figure that out. So yeah. that's something I'd love to figure out and be able to support entrepreneurs more with in Europe. But I think, again, we're still so early in, in building companies that we don't know what the best model is. Yeah, fair enough. Excellent. Well, thanks for that, Scott. Um, as always, we'd like to conclude with any any shameless plug that you'd like to, to make. Um, no. No, no shameless come, plug. Come to see camp. Come to see camp. Yes, that is the ultimate shameless plug. But um, thank you guys for joining us. And until next time, bye. Bye.